0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 19. I uh, have some corollary passages that I would have liked to have read this morning, but I think, having been away a week, that it would be good to return to the text at hand. Um, We are going to be looking at several other passages this morning uh, throughout the message, but we want to uh, review again the context uh, of the account here in Acts chapter 19. And uh, we're going to pick up... uh, Oh, we're going to read verses 1 through 20. And it happened while Paul was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized in the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12, and I'm going to go ahead and read another passage of Scripture with you as we get into our text here. In Acts, Hebrews 12, beginning verse 12, if you'll follow along with me, it says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down on the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." If you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. see. That you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shall not shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. As of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we you thank you for your word before us and for the opportunity to look into it together. And we do commit this time to you and pray that you might fill it and work in it by your Spirit. That you might convict where men are unable to. And that you might encourage to strengthen us beyond the measure that men can use to stand and humble ourselves before you And yet, to be bold in our approach to you as our Father. But Lord, we know that that has demands of us. And we pray that we might be attentive to those demands today. And not only this day and in this place, this hour, but that it might persist in our lives. That we might cling to your holiness. That in that day of your visitation, that we might be acceptable in your sight. We praise His in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Acts chapter 19 and we saw two weeks ago the necessity of having the right Jesus. And if you'll recall, we looked at the necessity of, of having the whole message and of placing our trust in the right one. And not only in the right one, but that we must do it personally. We saw the fact that Believing that there would come a Messiah was not sufficient. It wasn't just enough to believe John's message. Uh, John's message was a, a prelude. It was an introduction to Jesus Christ awaiting his ministry. But those that Paul came across in Ephesus um, were looking for a Messiah. Um, and maybe we can use the Messiah, but they didn't know of who, is, who he was, what he had accomplished. And uh, once they received that message, and they were prepared in their hearts to do so, that was very evident, um, that they were anxious to hear that their hope had been fulfilled. But it was still necessary for them to receive that hope from Christ Himself, to accept Him and to then enter into the waters of baptism, not uh, according to John, but in the waters of baptism into Christ. And they received the evidence of the Holy Spirit, really not for... The benefit of Paul before the Jewish community there in Ephesus, which we saw, was fairly large. And we find that uh, that was necessary. In addition, it is not sufficient simply to believe in someone else's Jesus. That we saw how the seven sons of Sceva were manhandled when they sought to do the work of God by the name of one that they had not personally trusted in. And we're going to spend some a little more time uh, investigating that somewhat today. Um, <clears throat> but we saw the effect of, we're going to do this in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. Not the Jesus that we believe in. Not the Jesus that we follow. Not the Jesus that we preach. We just think that there's a magic way to use that name. And we see many people wanting to reinvent their own Jesus, or even just uh, not have a personal relationship with Him, but uh, they know about Him, they know of Him, they've seen the effect of His work, and they want to uh, enjoy that wave of uh, activity without the transformation of truly trusting in Him. And so we saw that enormous failure. And we are warned. I hope you're warned. That we think, well, I know the name Jesus, and I know some of the story of Jesus Christ, and maybe you've seen and evidence some of His power, as these men had, um, but that does not equal a relationship with Him. And of course, the passage of Christ in Matthew comes out very clearly, that many will say to me, look what we've done in your name. We have preached, we have cast out demons, we have healed all in your name. And they believe that because they have done those acts, that that gives them some reason to be gained access to heaven. And Christ's response to them in that day will be, depart, I don't know you. And so, maybe the question I need to ask you today isn't, do you know Jesus? But the real question is, does Jesus know you? Because it is certain that all of you know of him and know about him, and we have been we have rehearsed his story and, and preached through his gospel and and looked at the prophecies pointing to him out the Old testament and the pictures that are there and the and the purposes of his fulfilling that law um, that uh, he could become our propitiation and we have seen all of that and so i 'm not talking about a knowledge of him but of His knowledge of you. And not just of your existence, but of an intimacy that he would call you his own. It is one thing for us to claim the name of Christ and to use the derogatory term of little Christ, Christian. It is another thing to follow the way. And this, the people of Ephesus have demonstrated to us. that, And we have a great contrast here and it's just so powerful that we we have to take some time on it um, rather than pressing on into the riot in Ephesus. Um, And the contrast is going to call us to re-examine the glory, honor, holiness of God and its demands. That we sang... Glory, laud, and honor to Him. Of all these alleluias that speak of the holiness of God, His, his set-apartness, his, that he is, he is distinct, that He is righteous, that He is the judge of all the earth. And we submit ourselves to that fact, but we seldom let it trickle down into our very lives where we recognize, oh, I am so unworthy of even using His name and singing His praises. And one of the songs that we sang today asked the question, or asked the, 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 not the question, but the request of God, oh, please let our song of praise be accepted before you. Because not every song of praise to God is acceptable to God. Just like not every person who says, I'm going to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus, is acceptable to Jesus. It's not even acceptable to the demon. And so we have the idea that if we participate in these religious activities and we call ourselves little Christ, that somehow we are acceptable to God and that this is sufficient. But obviously, from Christ's remarks, it isn't enough. It isn't sufficient for us to know about him, to know of him, to use his title, to to uh, uh, engage ourselves in activity that befits those who are followers of the way, um, but it is necessary that we actually be followers of the way. That it defines who we are. And so the seven sons of Skiva are beaten up and thrown out of the house by one man, indwelt by a demon. They were powerless. And I would contend that such knowledge about Christ, no matter how thorough it is, is of no value, has no power. When it continues to be someone else's Jesus and not your own. When it continues to be the God of the Bible and not the God of you. And it continues to be the creator of the world and not your Lord. The seven sons of Sceva are a testimony to this fact. And in verse 17 of Acts 19, we have this record that it became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus of what happened to them. They were naked, they were wounded. They uh, tried, but it wasn't their own relationship with God, and so they were defeated, resoundingly defeated. And my contention is that for most Christians in our society who are experiencing resounding spiritual defeat, it is because they, like the sons of Sceva, know what the name of Jesus is capable of. They know what the that that. They've seen its power in others. But they are spiritually defeated in their life because they never made it their own. And they're afraid. Even this fear does not equal salvation, but rather it is necessary for us to be ready to receive the gospel. So fear fell upon everyone. Don't take this Jesus lightly. He's not a magic potion. He is not someone to be trifled with. He's not someone that you can uh, ride like a horse and control that way. No, He needs to be your Lord, your Master, not just this benevolent One who has bought you out of hellfire. And this fear is necessary. And it is what I believe is lacking in many in our land today. For we think that we can come to God on our terms and use His name indiscriminately, and somehow that God is going to be pleased with all of this. But the fact is, is that when we are resoundingly spiritually defeated, it is a referendum. It is a statement that declares that you are not his. But there's a contrast. There's a phrase I'm skipping in verse 17. We'll come back to it. And that's in verse 18. There's another group. It says they did believe, it uses they had believed. They had become believers. So as many who had believed came, and now in response to realizing the significance of what a relationship with Jesus Christ really entails, they came with these words, confessing and telling their deeds. Now we are not when we use the word telling their deeds, we often think, Oh, they were telling about the great things they were able to do um, by the power of Christ and we look back at what Paul was, the, the working of God through Paul, uh, that is so amazing that that he didn't have to be physically present. He didn't have to say the word. All he had to do was touch the garment. The garment went to the person. The person was either healed or the demon cast out of them. And that is the wondrous working of God through Paul, which got everyone's attention, which they thought they could then abuse and misuse. And so these That's what we often think of when we think of deeds. We're telling of our deeds. But that's not the reference here. The reference here is they're telling about their evil deeds. Who they were. And maybe to some degree who they kind of still are. They came confessing it. And this is something that we (coughs) need some work on. Um, In... Our faith family, we have um, lost this art of the Christian life, of following the way. I think a lot of that is a knee-jerk reaction to Catholicism that has men go in and confess their sins to another man in the booth, confessional booth. And in a knee-jerk reaction, we've gone too far the other way where there is never a public confession of sin. By the way, that isn't public confession of sin either. That's why it's a little booth and there's only one guy over there on the other side of it and you're supposed to have some, res- some semblance of privacy um, and uh, it has a totally different purpose than we we're referring to today. But because of that connection we have overreacted and eliminated this really from our expression of following the way of Christ. That there is place for, time for, and necessity of confession. That these came forward and recognizing that this Christian life, this following of the way, is not something to be trifled with, it's not something to to just play with, This is something that must be ingested. This is something that must become who I am. And not just a a part of me for one day a week or one hour a week, but it has to define who I am all the time or it ceases to be of any relevance to me at all, spiritually. Either it is all or God isn't interested in any. Let's just put it out there like that. Either it is all, you're all in, Or God isn't interested in any. What we see most Christians doing is trying to figure out what's the minimum amount I have to be engaged in this thing called Christianity for God to accept me. What's the minimum? And I want you to know the minimum is all. And by the way, Christians today, churches today, this is nothing new. Go back to Israel and see what What's the problem? What was the problem? Well, we're going to keep the Sabbath because we're good Jews. We're going to um, go on the Sabbath and we're going to offer a sacrifice because we're good Jews. Um, so we kind of meet the minimum standards there. We have met those religious requirements. And then we go back to our panel houses. And we live in our wealth and splendor. And throughout the rest of the week, Sunday through Friday, sunset, we are serving the gods of the Canaanites. And God said, yuck. Well, it was more substantial than that. He said, you're dead, man. You think I'm accepting your sacrifice on Saturday, given what you do Sunday through Friday? Uh Uh-uh. You think I want your tithe? When I don't have your heart? Uh Uh-uh. I'm not interested. And so we have that example. God requires all. And if He doesn't have all, He's not interested in any. You can give Him little portions and serve the gods of your life the rest of the time and I'm going to tell you whose you are. Not God's. You're theirs. And so, we have missed this facet of coming forward and declaring that these parts of our lives need to be gone, need to be dismissed, and that this isn't just a private action, but it is of a public nature. That is, that the body of Christ is so... interested in righteousness and holiness, that we recognize that we have a mutual responsibility to one another to maintain a purity in our midst. And if that means that, that ones are confessing and, and others are, are responding to that by, by encouraging and perhaps some that will rebuke and correct and instruct in righteousness, why? So we can be complete. Completely His. And this we've lost. Because I believe we've lost touch of the holiness of God and lost touch of the ugliness of sin. And we think that if we make the private confession, no matter what else goes on, that somehow that's that's a private thing between me and God, that somehow my sin doesn't have a corporate effect. But it does. It does. So these, recognizing the seriousness of this relationship with Jesus Christ, come forward and they come forward with confession on their lips. Not to the pastor, to the church. The evidence is this is a public statement. They were coming forward and they were saying, Here are deeds of of darkness and unrighteousness. If you want to have a feel for what that is, read some of the Bible. It's no mistake that you go through Romans, you go through Corinthians, you go through Galatians, you go through Hebrews, you go through Peter, you go through John, and you hear lists of, uh, including the book of Ephesians, and you see lists of, this is what you once were. And they list them off. I mean, they're pretty specific in their listing off of, these are the kind of things you were involved in. You said so yourselves at your public confessions of your sin, but we don't even want to talk about sin anymore let alone publicly confess it. I'm willing to sing, I'm only a sinner saved by grace, but we want to keep it generic. This is not what these people did. They didn't come forward confessing, I'm a sinner. They come forward confessing their deeds. These are the sins I've committed against the holy, holy, holy God. And they are deplorable. And I'm turning from them, but to turn from them effectively, I need you to know. These are my sins. And I'm working at them. I'm striving against them. And by God's grace and by His power, I look forward to having victory over them. Um, but, but to do that in isolation is, is wrong. And it's unhealthy. When one part of your body gets an infection, you ever notice how the rest of your body responds? Oh, it's just the finger. It's a private thing. Let the finger deal with it. But what happens when that infection in your finger isn't addressed? We know what happens. It spreads. Pretty soon you've got gangrene. And you're losing appendages. So well, they would be fingers, hands, arms... Because you left it unaddressed. But no, we know what happens when we get an infection. Our whole body's focus becomes we need to address that. And most of us don't come to our mind thinking, I have an infection there. Where's a hatchet so I cut off the finger? Um, And that hopefully is not the attitude of our church to each other's sin. Where's the hatchet to cut them off? Rather, we come saying, here it is, and we're going to point to that and say, there's the problem. And, and this finger comes over this finger and says, oh, that, that's not good. It's kind of an ugly color, and it's bad things are happening under there. And the whole finger is warm, and we feel the temper. And if the infection is widespread, our whole body is responding with that, that thing we call fever. And trying to burn that thing, to kill that thing off, and to attack that thing. Our white blood cells are rushing to the site. We have this engagement of warfare versus whatever that thing is that's causing that infection in our body. Our body entirely is responding to it, whether it's cognitively or not. Our body wants to respond. And so it is, should be, in the body of Christ. That when one comes confessing confessing and recounting the deeds that we don't rush to cut them off, but rather rush to purify that site and to, and to give the balm of the gospel there and to help protect it from further infection. Isn't that what we do? We slice that open, we get the infection out of there, we plug some medicine in there, and then we bind it up. And that band-aid is there to keep the infection, any further infection, out. And that's what we desperately need. Once we've identified sin, oh, we need to take measures to keep that from happening again or becoming even worse. And look at the evidence in verse 19. This is incredible. Also, so they had the public confession. They told their deeds. They were believers. They did that in verse 18. That wasn't enough. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned in the sight of all they counted the value and told 50,000 pieces of silver i've asked the question a lot from this pulpit of where's the proof where's the proof of your faith that we have an obligation to be engaged in the process of demonstrating to the world our faith and demonstrating to one another our faith. That we are truly followers of the way. That we are truly those who are defining ourselves by our relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, this is the proof. This is the evidence. It is one thing to simply say, I have this sin problem. I'm confessing. I need your help. It's another thing to follow through and burn the books. Isn't it? Now Master, how many of you have, think you possess or might think you possess magic books, books on magic. Um, by the way, if you took your uh, iPad back to the time of Paul, they would consider you one of the greatest magicians in the history of the universe, your little magic pad. Yes, we're going to start an uh, electronics fire in the parking lot after church. We have access, profound um, in the history of man, to evil. And we have the complete foolishness of pride to think that we can manage it. that somehow we can engage and listen and see things that we should never hear, things we should never see, and we can manage it. That somehow our children can be exposed to ideologies and philosophies, to images of violence, of immorality, of profanity, and that it will not affect them. That somehow they can manage it. That somehow we can even keep within our homes the means to enge- engage in all sorts of evil. These individuals recognized that it's one thing to confess and to relate the deeds. It's another thing to remove them. To remove all access to them. And they didn't open up a garage sale to sell all their magic books to all the other people in Ephesus, to one of the magic books. They started a fire. And they were going to permanently destroy their access to this old life. And let's put it in those terms. To have the courage and the wisdom and the profound interest in righteousness to burn all bridges between where we want to be in our relationship with Christ and where we once were in our position of enmity with Him, where we were His enemy. Oh, then we would have the mindset of the Ephesians that recognize that I need to burn everything about my old life. I am a new creature in Christ. It is time for me to divorce myself from all that that was to be who God wants me to be. Now, in saying that, I'm not telling you to destroy all those relationships with unbelievers, um, but rather to not engage in what you once engaged with with them. And let's be real honest. Let's be real concise here. Um, We know how the world lives. We know what's important to them. Do we not? We have every knowledge. Of their value system, we know what they cling to. We can sit here and rub our hands together and say, "Oh, it's going to getting worse and worse." And of course, it is. The Bible says it would that in the latter times it would. But that's not really my concern because evil has been around a long time. They had magic books here. They had homosexuality way back, um, Sodom, Gomorrah days. Uh, and even before I would contend, um, but that really isn't something that I'm referencing here. The problem is that we still have one foot in that world and we intend to keep it there and still call ourselves followers of the way and it doesn't work. It's not the evidence that God knows you by name, as his child. But rather, it's the evidence of a rebellious heart that says, I'm going to try to please God in some things, but these things are just too valuable. They're too, I enjoy them. I like this part of the world. And and, uh, whatever reasons we have to stay connected to them, we maintain those bridges into our past and again and again, we have seen in, in book after book, and, and that's why I know I've preached it many, many times, the necessity of righteousness to follow along with our confession. That there should be evidence that we want nothing to do with that path any longer. I don't want to maintain these uh, points of access into that world. Ones who have gotten away from alcoholism and have become sober, don't go to bars. Because they know the danger point there. Yet Christians somehow in our mentality think that we can be saved out of it and still wallow in it. We read earlier from Hebrews 12 and it's there I want to take us conclude this morning we started there I want to conclude here verse 14 says pursue peace with all and holiness without which no one will see the Lord and then this admonition looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God chapter 12 of Hebrews verse 14 and 15 Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Wow. Let that sink in a little bit. I'll help you. (laughs) You ready? You want to see the Lord? You're going to have to be holy. Holiness isn't just about being ethical. Holiness is about being set apart. Being not of this world. It means not keeping one foot in that place while trying to walk with one foot in this way. That's what it means. To pursue peace with all and holiness. That you're going to pursue. It is something you must chase after. Without it, you will not see the Lord. Not in terms of your Savior. Not in terms of of well done and welcome to heaven, you'll only see Him as your judge, as the one who will come to you and say, "Um, you're seeing me for this instant, but depart from me, I never knew you. You are a worker of iniquity. Because if you are not holy as God is holy, then that is your condition. That is your place. is not in the presence of the Lord. You will not see Him. And so we are to be engaged in this activity that I think the Ephesians showed us what it means to look Carefully lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God. Are we looking carefully? Are we looking closely into not only our lives but each other's lives to say, Don't fall short? And I see some evidence in your life, you're falling short. And how do most people respond, How dare you judge me? How dare you give them anything to judge? How dare you walk in the world and and think that somehow because you call yourself a Christian that, that God should be pleased. We are to be looking carefully and that's the whole point of Hebrews. The whole book is about don't fall away. Don't lose out on all that God has done for you because you're unwilling to walk in the way that God has Put before you. And so look carefully. That means to go intimately into each other's lives and to be willing to certainly get the moat out of our own, but also that doesn't excuse us from looking at the beam beam out of our own. To look at the moat in each other's. We're supposed to do all of it. The Bible tells us that we are to pray that we are not led into temptation, that we keep each other from sin. And I love Samuel's closing remarks of his ministry. That I will not sin against God by ceasing to pray for you. That you walk in His ways. Isn't that interesting? It's sinning against God to not pray for each other that we stay out of sin. And what is the Push? What is the motive? What is the drive that keeps us clearly on the way that Christ has laid forth for us to follow, to demonstrate and to prove that we truly are believers? Well, the motive, the drive, is a certain level of fearfulness. You see, the fearfulness of taking seriously a relation with Christ uh, makes some skeptical, some wary to believe. But its effect on those who are truly the children of God is that I'm going to be careful to obey. So, let me give you an example from your family life. Um, when I am tough on some children, some teens in our Youth program or Word Life clubs, um, they can simply walk away and not come back, and many of them do that um, because we talk about sin and we talk about uh, its requirement, we talk about absolute truth, and we and we use those kind of terms, and and many of them don't like that, and so they just don't come back. And even though they might have a level of some fearfulness about oh, you mean you believe that and, and, and they don't want to even think about those things, so why would they ever put themselves in an the environment to think about those? And they might even leave here saying, oh, he's a mean guy or he's, they're, they're hard or whatever. Um, and they're going to go their way. And there's not much I'm going to do about it because they're not my kids. I don't have any other expectation for them. I'm saddened by it, but they, they're making their choices. When I come to my own children, and I discipline them in the home, and we have that relationship, and they recognize that everything they got, they get from me. Their life included. That they are getting their food, their housing, everything cared for from the hand of their father. And then when that hand strikes them for being disobedient, which is what Hebrews talks about, no one in discipline. If you're a son, you get chastened. If you're not a son, you don't. What is the response of that fear? When that child has been disciplined by a parent that loves them and to whom they belong, what is the result of that fear? It's not to go the way of the earth Sometimes it is. They rebel and they want out of that house and they're going to get out of there and I've had that happen. But if they're genuinely in that relationship and they recognize that they are the recipients of the grace of the Father and that they have received all these good things from His hand when He disciplines them in their fear, that fear moves them not to rebellion, it moves them to obedience. I'm not going to disobey Dad. I, I remember the last time. I don't want that pain anymore. I don't want that loss. I don't want that deprivation. And uh, I, I don't want that. And there's a, a certain fearfulness that that moves them to be righteous. And the book, writer of Hebrews calls us to that and he says, listen, um, remember what happened there in Israel. That was bad. Um, and that was a fearful thing. Um, But what happened there is not even comparable to what's going on here. They heard the voice of God from a mountain. And yes, all Israel heard the voice of God, at least on one occasion. And they cried out, saying, we don't want to hear it ever again. So before you start asking to hear the voice of God, take notice. All Israel heard the voice of the Lord on the mountain. And they cried out to Moses, Please, we don't want to hear that ever again. You go talk to him and tell us what he says. We don't want to hear the voice of that holy God ever again. It instills that kind of fear in their hearts. And the writer of Hebrews says, You think that voice was something? We're not waiting for a voice on earth. We are not surrounding a burnt black top mountain. We are standing, because of our relationship through Jesus Christ, with heaven itself. With a temple not made with hands. With a voice of the mighty one. Surrounded by a host of the angels. And... Surrounded by the spirits of men made perfect. And we stand in that environment and God says, Be me holy as I am holy. And it should shake us into obedience. That we should be trembling with the idea that somehow I'm going to leave this place. I'm going to go out there and live like the world and still claim to be little Christ. And not thinking, I have to answer to that place where nothing of darkness is ever allowed. And when Hebrews says, listen, if you aren't holy, you will not see the Lord. He means it. A holiness that transcends what the world thinks. I don't care if they think you're already weird because you're a little different than them. I want them to know you're weird because you're a lot different than them. That you won't speak like they speak. You won't see what they see. You won't hear what they hear. You won't engage what they engage in. Oh, that that would be the testimony of every saint that we are holy, holy, holy because we must answer to that throne, not to a black mountain on this earth. We have to answer to the holy throne of God because that is where our salvation has come from and that is where our, the Spirit of God that we call Holy Spirit has resided within us. And oh, that we would be holy as He is holy. And that we would take this fear that I'm going to miss I'm not going to see the Lord. I want to be told to depart because He doesn't know me. Oh, that we would have that genuine fear of that and live in obedience just as children who are submissive to their parents when they get disciplined are going to be instilled with a fear that says, I'm going to obey my dad. I'm going to obey my mother. Oh, that we would have a level of realization that we are answering to God Almighty who is holy who is in glory. And the author of Hebrews says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape, you refused them spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape? If we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. You want to claim that you are free from the law? Oh yes, you are free from the law of Moses, because Christ has made you free, and now you are free to follow the law of Christ which is holier than the law of Moses could ever be. For you are filled with the Spirit of God. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Spirit of God that was in you and you're not your own? Therefore glorify God in your body, which is God's. Don't sit here and tell me you are a little Christ and go out there and live like a little devil. It doesn't work. It's a lie, and you're deceiving yourselves. And so we have this genuine fearfulness that because we have this kingdom that, we, that isn't going to be shaken, it says in verse 28 of, of Hebrews 12, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. That fire burnt the top of a mountain. It's still black today. You can look it up on Google Earth. It's still there. Blacktop Mountain. It's still there. It's not in the Sinai Peninsula because Sinai wasn't there. It's in Saudi Arabia. Jabal Laws. It's still there. Blacktop Mountain. We're not afraid of that fire that burnt a mountain. We're dealing with a fire that's going to come from the throne of God. It's going to judge all the earth and go into eternity as a lake of fire. And because we have brought God down to be less than what He is, we think that somehow He should be pleased with our pathetic attempts at being somewhat religious by coming to a service now and again. And our pastors are too captivated with trying to maintain attendances and budgets and things to really confront sin. Because when we do that, people leave. But, oh, we need to do that so that people leave. Yeah, I said that. And then we can tell who's in the family and who's not. And better to find out here on earth when we can still address that issue than to deceive ourselves and walk into eternity where it is set. And those that we thought were good end up being unknown to God. And we permitted it because we were unwilling to look carefully at each other and ourselves, to make sure that we hadn't fallen short of the grace of God. I love the Ephesians testimony. In Revelation, we find out that their love is for God and for each other um, was incomparable. But they lost it somewhere along the way. And God's message to the Ephesian church was you've forgotten your first love. This is what the love of God looks like. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to to do it specifically and directly. And I'm going to humble myself. And I'm going to burn that bridge to that sin in my life. And that means I have to uh, extricate myself from all the fancy gadgets of this world to do it that I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to take whatever measures to get that out of my life as dramatic as they may be and as expensive as they may be, oh, that we would have the interest in holiness to burn the books in our life. That we might not miss seeing the Lord in the day of His revelation. Well, the last thing in this that I want to address is I skipped. But I also want to touch the next one. Verse 20 says, So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And this I want to connect with the phrase I skipped in verse 17, that the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, I got a little excited there and I lost my voice. You see, you don't preach for two weeks and you lose your preaching voice. Says the word of the Lord grew and prevailed. And I love that word. Um, We often think of growth as more people accepting Christ, and certainly that was evident. But we also have another facet of growth that means that everyone started taking their faith more seriously. That they were growing in the Lord. And this it is no mistake that Paul in his writing to the Ephesian church in the book of Ephesus talks about you have pastors, teachers, you have you have all these prophets, you have all these people ministering in the church so that you can grow. The word of the Lord is going to be the mechanism by which we grow. And I, I just want to challenge you, and I've done this lots of times, that our world is steeped in entertainment. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that the Word of the Lord doesn't grow in our churches is because you think it's boring in comparison to what the dangling entertainment that the world puts out there. It has rewired your brain um, that you can't hardly read. I think every one of us is ADD thanks to commercials alone Um, in the TV watching. um, I challenge people, count. Not just the commercials, but count in movies how long you're on one scene. Count how many seconds before the camera angle changes, before you're looking at a different face, a different view of the same face. Count how many seconds. See if you ever get to three. That's the attention span of the American three seconds. It takes longer than that to read a verse of the Bible. And therefore, you're bored before you even got started. Because your brain has been wired to think in one to two second intervals. That's why you can't hardly stay asleep or stay asleep, stay awake during a message because this is boring. Of course this is boring. Poor Sunday school is boring. Look at how your brain is wired by the world to receive data in one to two second exchanges. And that's how we are. And so it's not going to grow. It says the word of the Lord has to grow mightily. It has to grow. And then it also says it's going to prevail. And that word prevail, I ask the question, prevail over what? It says the word of the Lord prevailed. Well, to prevail is to prevail over something. In other words, you have, you have overcome something. And the question I always ask that, that's not really answered in the verse is, prevail over what? But I think the context answers the question. Um, the demons, the demon possessed man, prevailed over the seven sons of Sceva. One man prevailed over them. They ran out naked and wounded, they were, they were destroyed. He overpowered them, is the, what the word used here, and prevailed against them. So here's a demon possessed man prevailing over the seven sons of Sceva trying to play at Christianity without personal relation with God and no holiness. But they're trying to use it like a magic potion. I prayed this little prayer and shazam! I'm acceptable to God and everything's good. Wrong. They got prevailed upon. So, now we find the same word, Christ, the word of God prevailed. What does it prevail over? The darkness of this world, both in your life and in our common experience within the church. The word of Lord prevailed. It had the upper hand. It overpowers the world. And you might say, well, Pastor, I, just can't, I don't want this sin in my life, but I just can't seem to get... Beyond it, am I, con- I would challenge you that you need to do what the Ephesians did. They came forward. They confessed it. They stated their deeds. They, they, they burned the bridge between them and, the, and that past act. And then they invested themselves. They, they, they immersed themselves in the Word of God. And it was the Word of God that prevailed over that sin in their life. And this is the promise of God for His children. You cannot read the New Testament without being driven to holiness. You can't do it. Not honestly. And so the Word of God prevailed. And as also the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, that is, that it was much more revered. Because these guys were taking it in vain. Trying to use it like a little magic potion. That they could get rid of spirits that way. And I see a lot of use of Jesus' name like a little magic potion. Well, say it in Jesus' name and your prayer has to be heard at the end of our prayers. Never mind that you just prayed a whole series of things that God doesn't want for your life that is your interests and lusts at heart that uh, are of this world and not of the next. But if you close it in Jesus' name, God is Bound, he has to do it, right? No, the word magnified here is that it was respected. the word, The name of Jesus Christ was held in awe. We're not going to just indiscriminately use it anymore. We're going to give it the the value that it deserves. We're going to, even if I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not going to toy with it. Because that can be devastating. And I will contend with you that there are many in churches today and I'm not going to rule out from this church as well that are playing with the name of Jesus Christ and not magnifying it. You want to magnify God's name? You're going to put it in awe and reverence, the name of Jesus Christ. Then you are going to live holy, holy, holy lives. And you are going to take seriously this relationship. It's not something that's just a sidelight of your life, but is the defining point of your life. It is who I am. I am a follower of the way. It is the only way I am interested in. There is no second way. This is not a two-lane highway I am on. It is, it is singular And it is righteous and it is holy, and there are expectations and demands, and yes, it is uphill, and yes, there are some rugged points through it that that I have to swall through sometimes, but it is still the way of God. And its end is to see the Lord. And it is worth the effort. Oh, that we would follow the way. And that the word of the Lord would prevail in our life. That it would be the thing that overcomes all the rest. That my interest in the entertainment of this world simply diminishes because the word of the Lord has prevailed. My interest in the images of this world diminishes because it has been prevailed upon by the word of the Lord. My interest in the philosophies of this world dim because the word of the Lord has prevailed in my life. The interest in being accepted by this world becomes offensive Because the word of the Lord has prevailed in my life. And this is the testimony of Ephesus. Oh, they believed the right Lord and they believed personally. They received the Holy Spirit. They had the evidence of it. They reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. They confessed, told their deeds. They burned their bridges to their old life of sin. And the word of the Lord prevailed. And it grew mightily. And the name of Jesus was magnified. And this needs to be the testimony not only of this church, but of every church that calls themselves followers of the way. For that way is a way of righteousness. Righteousness. And we are reminded that few find it. And that, along with all the rest we've sinned, should startle you into a certain fearfulness that would, at the very least, cause you to consider your ways, to see if your ways are of the way. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us and we thank you again for the testimony of your church and we look at the men of Ephesus and, and their response to your gospel and we, we smile and we rejoice over it and then we look around and our smile quickly changes. And for this, Lord, we pray that you might work in our hearts. That we might be able to share their love for you that move them to belief, to submission to the baptism of Christ, to move them to submission to your spirit and to confess their sin and their evil deeds and to do them no more and not even make provision for them Lord most of all we want your name magnified we are sorry that we have drug it through the mud of this world's sin so often I'm not sure we're sorry enough to keep it from happening again Lord, give us the courage to build to burn the bridges. Not just be sorry for that sin, but to take measures to see that it doesn't happen again. That that is the evidence of true repentance, the proof that we have been transformed from darkness to light. Lord, help us to respond. your truth to follow your way Lord I want you to know me not just in that day but at this day and I want to see you on that day And so we thank you for your word to guide us along the way. Help us to stay on the path. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.